This is episode number 218, The Revolutionary Potential of the Bicycle for Women, with author Hannah Ross. Welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Their lives were generally quite domestic and contained, and the bicycle was the exact opposite of that. It represented a freedom and an ability to be independent and go to places and have fun and pleasure. And then in the extreme end, some doctors and moral commentators would say that the act of riding a bicycle would be your moral downfall. Essentially, they were saying that you would become a prostitute or sexually promiscuous just because you sat in a bicycle saddle. And I'm so thankful that you're here hanging out with us today and that you are listening to this podcast. I know there are tons of really awesome podcasts out there, so just getting to spend a little bit of time in your earbuds means a lot to us. If you're enjoying the show, we would really appreciate it if you could take 30 seconds to rate and review the show. It helps other people just like you find it so that they can find entertainment and value in their lives to be better every day. And big thank you to those of you supporting my work financially on Patreon and PayPal. Your donations mean a lot and they go towards paying our audio engineer Roma and my assistant Tina to make sure that this podcast sounds awesome and is uploaded in a timely manner every week. And we're also putting these on YouTube now. So if you are interested in watching or even just watching for a little bit, you can go to youtube.com slash Sonia Looney and the number one, and you can start seeing the guests and I interact in live time. And speaking of time, it's been really interesting this year. I'm sure many of you have had lots of conversations with your friends and family about what the pandemic means to you and how you've had to adjust to a new normal with that. And it's also interesting because it seems like people say, oh, 2020, the year 2020 is going to be a crazy year in history. But just because December 31st comes around doesn't mean that everything's going to reset on January 1st. And it just feels like people are putting an end date on all the craziness for December 31st. And it's probably not going to be that way. So again, it's going back to thinking about the big picture, which is something that I have to do really regularly because I've had the pandemic, just like everybody else, all the effects of the pandemic, and then also a new baby and trying to do all these different things in my life and just trying to, again, think big picture and also think about the rate of achievement and what that means to you. And this is something that Matt and I talked about last week on our Parenthood podcast. But a lot of times we put these own self-inflicted pressures in our lives to achieve more or get something or do something. And it does feel good to set goals and to achieve things. But I think that whenever life gets really crazy, it helps to think big picture and realize that if things are slower for you or things are different for you in a shorter chunk of time, like maybe one year, maybe it's two years. But in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, life is still going to be just fine and you're still going to be okay. So that's been helpful for me. And then there are days where I feel really stressed out and overwhelmed, just like everybody else or days where I just don't feel good on my bike. And it's been really inconsistent this year. And it's been really frustrating in that regard. But 
the way that I get around that is I practice self-compassion. And I guess I wouldn't say get around it the way I get through it is practicing self-compassion. And actually multiple times a day, I say out loud to myself, you're doing the best that you can, or it's okay. And those are two mantras that in addition to showing up and giving it my best, whatever my best looks like that day, saying it's okay, or saying this is the best I have for today and practicing that, that has been really helpful for me to not beat myself up or not get impatient or to stop the negative chatter in my head. If you like conversations like this, in my newsletter every Sunday, I send out a thought of the week where I just talk about something that I've noticed or been dealing with myself during the week. And I also share a thought for you to ponder yourself and also the podcast. So you can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. It's really fun connecting with you guys there and sharing content on that newsletter that you can't get anywhere else. And if you enjoyed the parenthood episode that Matt and I did, we've been doing them once per month at the first Thursday of the month. And for November, if you have any questions or things that you want us to cover, please send me an email. You can go to my website and there's a contact form there or email Sonia at sonyaluni.com. And I would love to hear from you and we would love to address any types of questions you might have. It doesn't even have to be about parenthood. It could just be questions that you have about life or how we do things or just what we think about things. So really appreciate you guys. And now I'm going to tell you all about today's guest. And I'm really excited about today's guest because it's a really interesting topic. So Hannah Ross is an author, and she has researched and documented the revolutionary potential of the bicycle. Her book, Revolutions, How Women Change the World on Two Wheels, is a chronicle about the history of the bike and how over the last 130 plus years, it has helped women change history. From the evolution of the design of bicycles to the importance of the bicycle in the women's suffragette movement to even the Black Lives Matter movement, the bike has been a cornerstone throughout history. And we often don't hear about it in this context. So I'm really excited about the things you're going to learn today. We didn't have time to get into the full history of women's racing, but the topic is beautifully covered in Hannah's book as well. Revolutions also celebrates women setting records and demanding equality in competitive cycling, as well as cyclists in countries like Afghanistan, India, and Saudi Arabia, who are inspiring women to take up space on the road, trails, and elsewhere. And let me tell you, learning about women's rights in places like Afghanistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, it's really crazy that we so take for granted being able to just throw our leg over a bicycle as females and ride and race where women are being persecuted in other countries just for getting on a two-wheel machine. So have a listen. I think you'll really enjoy that. If you like bikes and you love history, this fascinating episode will give you some great nuggets to think about and talk about with your friends. Another quite shocking thing to learn was about the patriarchal oppression of women cycling. And I already touched on that a little bit, but that was just so shocking to me. And I'm so glad that Hannah took the time to go back through the British libraries and look through magazines from the 1890s to get all of this information. All right, so let's get into today's episode with Hannah Ross. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, a great honor to be invited. Before we hit the record button, we were both talking about mom life and you have a newborn. How's that going for you? It's going really well, but I haven't been on a bike since she was born. So it's 12 weeks now. Well, longer than 12 weeks without cycling, which is probably the longest stretch that I can remember. So I'm looking forward to getting back into that soon. But yes, she's fantastic. I've been loving every minute. So it's great. 
Did you always want to have kids or was this something new that kind of came up in your life? Yes, we did. But my partner and I have both been quite busy for the last however many years, writing this book, changing jobs, going to live in France for a bit. So yeah, this was a good point to have a baby. But yeah, always slightly apprehensive as well about how a baby fits in with a lifestyle where we're doing a lot of cycling and a lot of traveling and cycling. But now I'm excited about how we can do that with her at some point and looking at kind of cargo bikes and co-pilots and all of that stuff. Yeah. And like as a feminist, did you think about what having a kid meant to you and, you know, what that means? And then also when you had a daughter, what, what were the thoughts behind that? Gosh, that's that's a big question. Yes, definitely. Certainly because from casual observation, it seems that just looking at cycling as an activity in this instance, but um, it would tend to be women that will give that up or certainly for a longer period than their partners will. Um, And their partners tend to find it easier to go back to it and find time for it. So yeah, there's all of that trying to make it as equal as possible is, yeah, definitely what I am hoping to aspire to. There's so there's so much in that that <laughs> um, we could talk probably all all the session about that really. Yeah, like things that I thought about were only women can have babies, so that is a really powerful thing, and that's awesome. But then there's also like the part where as a woman you want to be treated as an equal to a man and you want to have equal opportunity and you also I'm trying to think of a good way to say this like not everybody wants to just be a mom and for the people that are quote just moms there's nothing wrong with that and you can still be a feminist and be a stay-at-home mom but then it's just it's just a difficult conversation and I'm not doing a very good job saying what I'm trying to say yeah, just there's just a lot of thoughts that go around that. And what does it mean? And whenever you have a daughter, how to raise a daughter so that she sees herself like she isn't putting limited thoughts and things on what she can do in her life. So there's just like a lot that goes into, like you said, we could record a whole podcast on that. Yeah. And certainly that's kind of really, in a way, what the book's about. It's trying to show that that there are these amazing cycling stories for all these women that had generally been quite overlooked in the culture and history of cycling. And so it's, yeah, I would hope that for my daughter and her generation that they will certainly see cycling as something that is absolutely belongs to to women as much as men, like so many activities. And it is changing and it's, but it's taken a long time and it's kind of extraordinary that, you know, we're still having to talk about these things. And that, yeah, as I said, that was kind of one of the sort of big motivations for writing this book is is to kind of help make these stories more part of the mainstream history of cycling. So I found that a lot of certainly books about cycling, general books about cycling, there'd be, they, you know, they would cover women's history, but it would tend to be quite of a, a side note to, to cycling history. And I think that's kind of representative in a way of women cycling in general, in you know whether it's in the sport or just generally it just it do they just tend to be women have tended to be quite sidelined and it's interesting you're talking about motherhood as well because I am in towards the end of the book I talked to Lizzie Danan who's an Olympic cyclist um she just won La Course 
which is the women's race for the Tour de France. And she's a mother. And there are, we actually, I talked to her in the book about being a mother and a professional cyclist because there are so few professional women cyclists who are also mothers because it's very difficult. That, you know, again, this is kind of, you know, it's a, it's a complicated issue, but there is something that's stopping women in the sport being able to have children and come back. And part of that is because generally they earn so much less than men do and also they have to take out you know take a big chunk of time out of their career and it's very difficult to come back from that so it's an issue which kind of permeates kind of all areas of the sport yeah I think that being an empowered woman whether you're choosing to continue working you know when you have kids or choosing to be there all the time for your kids, which is absolutely amazing as a as a stay at home mom. But having the choice and being respected for your choice, I think, is part of what it means to be a feminist. And we'll we'll definitely get into some of the the stories in the book, which is incredible. But myself, you know, as a professional cyclist who got pregnant, had a baby, and you know, there's no racing in North America, or in, I guess in Canada. I can't I can't leave Canada because the borders closed. But there's no racing that I can do as a comeback. And I was planning to come back to racing after three months after having my son. And I think that a big part of women retiring or choosing to have a baby at the very end of their cycling career is is a twofold thing. It's number one, there is a lack of support in the bike industry, which is improving. But, you know, as somebody that negotiates all my own partnerships, I can say that it is very difficult when you're pregnant. And even when you have a baby to be negotiating sponsorships. And then on the other end, yeah, you have to you can't train like you were training before when you are pregnant and whenever you have a baby. And then you also have to have it's not just the sponsorships, you have to have support in your family and you also have to be willing to have childcare so that you can go out and train. And something that helped me reconcile that was yeah, like my job is to ride my bike. There could be a woman who's a lawyer and her job is to be a lawyer. So how is that any different? But for some reason because cycling is like it's a passionate job. Like people don't start, you know, cycling because they're not passionate about it and they become professionals probably because they're pretty passionate about it. But for some people, it looks as a hobby. And then some people will label you as selfish, even though, you know, you're not doing like a traditional job. So it's just a really interesting narrative. And I think it's really important to be having these conversations and just talking about what it all means, even though sometimes it's really hard to articulate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, there's a little bit in some ways about women and having children and professional sport. It goes back a little bit to the sort of the wrong ideas that people had, you know, over a century ago about women's biology and their, their capacity to, to do sport. And I think when you have a baby, it's kind of assumed that that kind of a little bit that that aspect of your life is over, that you, you're not capable anymore. A little bit, I think. And like you say, you, you know, that maybe there's this idea that you shouldn't be continuing with this particular career path, that as a mother, it's it's not suitable or the right thing to be doing. So there's just, there's so many kind of complex things going on, I think, around mothers and sports. And not to mention, as you say, the lack of the complete lack of support within the industry. Well, not complete, but you know that you know there has been a historically very little support for women and who are planning to become mothers or who are mothers and want to continue being professional athletes. Yeah, so let's talk about 
some of the things that were said to women in like the 1890s, early 1900s across the world about why women shouldn't ride bikes. Because I, I found some of those things that doctors said or, or men said to be really comical. But during that time, it wasn't as comical because that was kind of the zeitgeist. What are some of the things that were said to women? They were so wide and varied. And like you say, they do kind of come across as, as quite comical at times. Although actually, if you were there and being told these things, it probably was less so, although many women just ignored them and, and knew that they were kind of baseless. But one of the sort of the strongest kind of argument, well, not arguments, but ideas that gained kind of currency was this idea that it would impact on your fertility and you wouldn't be able to. So if you if you rode a bicycle, if you sat in a bicycle saddle, you would then impair yourself and you would not be able to have children. You would damage yourself because there was at that time, women's place was generally or particularly if you're a middle, more upper class woman, your place was in the home. It was to get married. It was to have a family. You didn't work if you didn't have to, if you financially didn't have to. And so this idea that you would imperil that was quite shocking to a lot of people. But by saying these things, it was a way of trying to stop people, stop women from going out and riding bicycles. And so there was a certain what I see as a kind of sort of moral panic around this idea of women riding bicycles. And it's hard to say now whether these doctors really believed it or whether they sort of were part of this, the kind of this, what was then this patriarchal idea that women shouldn't be going out to ride bicycles because in doing so, they were finding certain sense of independence and freedom and as I said their their lives were generally quite domestic and contained and the bicycle was the exact opposite of that it represented a freedom and an ability to be independent and go to places and have fun and pleasure but they were trying to conflate that with something that was kind of not nice there was, and then in the extreme end, some doctors and more moral commentators would say that the act of riding a bicycle would be your moral downfall, which essentially they were saying that you would become a prostitute or sexually promiscuous just because you sat in a bicycle saddle. And I see this, it's sort of this idea hasn't quite gone away in more kind of culturally conservative countries. In the book, I talk about Afghanistan and Iran, and there's this idea there still that this kind of, you know, to be to be a woman on a bicycle, you're sort of endangering your respectability. You're endangering your, it's a slippery slope, essentially. And it's still kind of this idea of sitting on a saddle is still kind of conflated with sexuality. And one of the funniest stories back going back to the 1890s was that some bicycle manufacturers then sort of leapt onto this idea of this moral panic about women sitting on bicycle saddles and what it could do to them. And they started creating different types of saddles, not to make women more comfortable, which is, you know, what bicycle manufacturers are trying to do now for women's cyclists. But essentially, they would say they were non-stimulating. They wouldn't make women, they wouldn't excite women sexually. 
which is kind of it's extraordinary. I mean, they wouldn't say it in so many words, but that's essentially the subtext of these products that they were marketing, which is kind of extraordinary, really. You know, it was that much of a concern that bicycle manufacturers would actually make a product in order to counter this absolutely ridiculous idea. <laughs> but yes, it didn't just stop with the reproductive organs. You know, it was it would make you go mad. You know, women in cycling, it could make you crazy it could cause there were things that they said that applied to men as well there was one of the kind of perhaps most famous things is bicycle face which is essentially the idea that your face would be stuck in a certain kind of position because it was so used to this position that you put it in when you pedaled that that you'd be stuck like that forever which is kind of again absolutely ridiculous but they you know this applied to men as well but I think it's the, the sort of where they really sort of focused in on women was around sexuality and reproduction. Yeah, it's just really interesting to think about that and to think about where did they come up with that thought process? And I'm trying to be, you know, fair about trying to understand where those male doctors or male, quote, experts came up with these ideas. And did you learn any more about that? Like where those ideas actually came from and how they back those up? Um, I don't think there was <laughs> there was much to back any of this up. I mean, doctors then were a very different kind of thing to how they are today. I'm not sure the medical education, I mean, was quite as rigorous and scientific <laughs> as it is today. So I think it was personal opinion and personal prejudice. There were, I mean, I do make it point out in the book and make it clear that there were actually doctors who had a totally different perspective on all this and they promoted cycling to their female patients. And actually, the ones that I talk about, they really recommended cycling because at this time, women's mental health was a particular, you know, was a focus and what they called neurasthenics, so women who'd had depression and mental breakdowns, which were generally treated in kind of different. And some, I talk about how there was a way of treating women with depression by using something called a rest cure, where women were basically confined to bed for weeks or even months on end. They did this to men as well, but like, but mostly it was to women. It was the idea, again, this idea that women are too frail and need to be kind of protected and their best way to keep themselves safe and healthy is to do as little as possible, which again is really about control. But many doctors completely rejected that and they actually prescribed cycling to their patients. And I mentioned a couple of cases in the book where the women who had been told to cycle said they lied their health was completely transformed by going out cycling and they felt so much better than they had done in years and their mysterious pains went away and and that's something that we can understand completely now when we know how um, absolute the link between exercise and mental health is, um, that that's kind of irrefutable now. But but some doctors were realising that at that time. And also they were probably realising that women's lives generally were fairly confined and narrow and not conducive to good mental health and getting women out well, encouraging women to go out and take exercise and have more independent, all these things that come with riding a bicycle was actually going to be a really great thing for women. 
Can we talk about the evolution of the bicycle? I, I thought it was really cool to learn about that in your book. And then also like the evolution of women's clothing. <laughs> I told my friends that I was reading this book and I was talking about, you know, what cycling was like in the 1890s and the 1900s. And my friend said, well, women can't ride a bike side saddle. You know, how, how did that all work? So, yeah, I'd love to hear about the evolution of bicycle design and also women's clothing and the, the pushback against that as well. Yes. So the the bicycle that kind of really changed everything was the safety bicycle. And that was invented in the 1880s. And that's the bicycle that most resembles the bikes that we ride today. But before this, I'm sure many people will have seen pictures of what in North America you call the high wheel. And in the UK, we call it penny farthing. It's, the, it's that strange bicycle with the absolutely enormous front wheel and the the very tiny little wheel at the back. I mean, it looks just absolutely absurd. That was, despite it's looking completely unrideable and highly dangerous, which it was, was hugely popular. So before the safety bicycle was invented, so just preceding that, this was the bicycle that dominated cycling. There had been bicycles before that. They all had their kind of drawbacks and generally weren't quite, they didn't quite have the same success as the high wheel. Um, so when the high wheel was invented, it, it really did seem to kind of capture a moment. And suddenly there were cycling clubs and bicycle races. There have been bicycle races before as well. But it really seemed to kind of, this desire to create a perfect two-wheeled machine was kind of really kind of, uh, kind of get, gathering ground then. But one of the issues with the high wheel, apart from the fact that it was pretty dangerous and, and not really very kind of user friendly, was that women couldn't ride them because how could you get on top of this huge thing if you are wearing long great skirts and petticoats, which pretty much every woman was because that was the outfit that you were expected to wear. It was kind of the outfit that was fashionable, but also to not wear, to wear, you know, women did not wear trousers at this time. And if you did, you were kind of, you would have been treated as an outcast completely or a kind of very freak, a freak, basically. So women were excluded from cycling. And, and then in the 1880s, the safety bicycle came along. So two wheels, the same size. It was vastly user-friendly compared to all the other bicycles that come before it it was a lot lighter you could actually stop it it had a chain <laughs> so um it had pedals as opposed to um a previous model where you'd had to run along the ground with, with your bicycle and in a few years after the safety was invented bicycle manufacturers realized that they could sell more bicycles if they could get more women to ride them and women were riding the new bicycles, but not in huge numbers. But then they came out with the women-specific design. So in around 1887, I think it was, the first women-specific bicycle came out with a with a drop bar. The crossbar was, was dropped, like women-specific bicycles today, so that when you were wearing long skirts and petticoats, you could easily just step over and the chain had a chain guard over it so the fabric wouldn't get caught. And this was a huge game changer. 
And it wasn't long before around a third of the bicycle market in the UK and North America was women, which considering it's around that figure today, it hasn't actually gone up that much, is quite amazing. And it just shows that there were so many women who didn't care what those doctors that we were talking about said, um, because the benefits of being able to go out and cycle were so huge. And it's also worth remembering that at this point, women in sports was almost non-existent, partly again, because as we said, the, the clothing made it so difficult. You know, sport was something that men did. It wasn't, women weren't encouraged to do it. So bicycling became a hugely popular activity for women. And so, you know, completely understandably, because they wanted to go out, you know, this is an opportunity to actually go out and do something physical and be a bit more independent. And there were women who then realised that, well, not realised, I think they knew, but they took the bicycles as this opportunity to adapt their dress to make it safer to ride bicycles. So this outfit that they wore was called Rational Dress, and it tended to consist of bloomers, which were trousers or pantaloons that went just below the knee, and a jacket. And at this point, that would have been really quite controversial. Women had tried to wear trousers previously. There had been movements where women had tried to introduce Rational Dress just in society in general, because they argued quite rightly that women's Victor- Victorian women's outfits were so cumbersome that they were just they were dangerous and they were actually stopping them being able to lead ordinary lives and just be able to, you know, if you think if you try and imagine how doing your just your ordinary day, but your kind of swathed in metres and metres of fabric that you're tripping on, um, getting caught around your ankles, getting caught in the wheels of carts that are passing you or potentially, or actually also a huge fire hazard. They were then, um, that was a big risk that sparks from fires could catch on your copious amounts of fabric and you could go up in flames. So women for years had been trying to change their clothes, but they had generally always been sort of had a lot of pushback and it never really kind of gained much traction. But the bicycle gave women more of a reason to be able to change their outfits. So although it wasn't accepted generally, there was certainly more of an understanding that, okay, you're on a bicycle and it probably is kind of safer And for instance, in France, it was written into law that women weren't allowed to wear trousers, but they actually changed it in the 1890s to say women could wear trousers if they were riding a bicycle or on a horse, which is kind of extraordinary that the bicycle could lead to an actual change in the law for women's dress. And actually, I don't think that was changed for (laughs) till actually quite recently, although obviously French women didn't pay any attention to it. So, yeah, the bicycle, a kind of really sort of far-reaching influence on the kind of women's transition and move towards, certainly a move towards kind of greater freedoms and emancipation that came in the 20th century. And certainly that can be symbolised in some way by the clothing that many of them chose to wear. 
Yeah, and I would love to hear more about how the bike is a tool for social justice and how the suffragettes use bicycles. Voting is something that is on top of mind for many people right now with the U.S. election impending. And there are many people who have the right to vote but don't exercise their right. And it's easy to take for granted that you're just born with this right to vote. But there are women before us and, and who couldn't vote and had to go through extreme measures in order to fight for our rights. So before we talk about you know using the bike for social justice, I just want to encourage everybody out there to exercise your right to vote because it's, it's really important to, to do that. And I, I had an experience where it wasn't like a crazy experience, but I moved to Canada year, some years ago and I'm a resident of Canada, but I'm not yet a citizen. And I thought that I was allowed to go vote in the local election because I got something saying like residents of BC, you know, British Columbia, here's where the voting is. So I went to go vote. And the lady who in charge of the voting, I told her like, hey, I'm here to vote. And I told her, but I'm not a citizen. And she was absolutely horrified that I was there trying to vote. And I was basically like thrown out. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like, this is what a fraction of what it would feel like to be a, a disenfranchised person. So just thinking about the, the rights and the things that we have are an absolute privilege and we should use those. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> that was my Absolutely. little diatribe. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Here, here. It's been really interesting to see how the bicycle has been used in some of the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on in the States. And also um, there's been a little bit of that here as well. And it's, um, it's really amazing to see, um, particularly, as you say, that the bicycle has been used previously for um, fighting for social justice. And in my book, I look at the suffragettes in the UK who were fighting for the vote, which we didn't get till 1918. And the suffragette organisation was the Women's Social and Political Union. And it was run by the Pankhurst the family. So Emmeline, Sylvia and Christabel. So Emmeline was their mother and she founded the organisation. And actually their members used the bicycle a lot. So firstly, in order to spread the word about votes for women. So various members would spend their weekends cycling around, because bear in mind, this is before most people had car, you know, it would be very rare to have, unusual to have a car. Public transport was limited. And so they used their bicycles in order to go and visit women in towns and villages near to where they lived. And they would sometimes turn up in a group and they would have the flags, literature to give out. So they would turn up in the village, park up on the, the village green. One of them would start talking about the movements and why it was so important for women to get the vote. And they would do this all around the region. And this was particularly effective in regions where it was really hard to get to. You know, there were villages and that just wouldn't have heard so much about the idea of women getting the vote or why it was so important. And the bicycle was that with this amazing tool in order to be able to communicate this message. And I talk in the book about one woman, woman member from Leicester, Alice Hawkins, who was particularly famous for the work that she did cycling around her region and getting women signed up and joining the organisation. Um, she was a 
extremely successful at it. And she also just loved cycling. She was a member of her local cycling club. So it was a kind of, she can manage to combine the two activities. So a Sunday cycle whilst also um, spreading the word about something that was so important to her. She also got imprisoned for taking part in protests in London. Uh, the suffragettes, they were often imprisoned for activities like setting light to empty buildings belonging to politicians or smashing the windows of MPs. And again, some of their members would often use the bicycle as their getaway vehicle, which kind of makes sense. And it's quite funny to think of now. I talk in the book about two women who made a plan to set light to a large unoccupied house that was owned by a British politician. And they rode up on their bicycles in the dead of night with all their arson equipment in their front bicycle baskets and then sped away afterwards. But they were seen by a policeman who stopped them, not because he thought that they'd set light to a house, but because they weren't they didn't have any lights on their bicycles. So they got a telling off, but actually they were they were tracked down and ended up in prison for what they'd done not long after. But yes, it for this for the suffragettes it was the bicycle was quite a um sort of linchpin of their organization and uh, as I mentioned the founders of the organization Christabel Pankhurst and um, Sylvia Pankhurst they've been really enthusiastic cyclists in their teens and they'd belonged to a local cycling club in Manchester so they although they gave up cycling as far as I can see when they got so kind of too busy with um, their work for the WSPU I like to think that cycling kind of was one of their sort of a foundational part of that suffragette movement. Yeah, and you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. And in your book, you have a statistic from 2019 from San Francisco showing that 13% of cyclists in the city are women of color with Asian and Hispanic women being the least represented. And that many of these people don't ride bikes because they don't see other women like them. And this is just another thread in the narrative of how important it is to have diversity, representation, and opportunity, not only just to ride the bikes, but in roles of power and influence, not only in our industry of cycling, but across everything. What other things did you learn about the lack of diversity and history and how that's affected cycling specifically? Well, in the whole of the history of cycling for women, it's been a story of the exclusion and marginalization. And it's still going on, which, you know, as you said, you, you mentioned that statistic, but also the fact that, you know, in the professional sports, women, there are less women's races, they are less high profile than the men's. Women get paid. There's a huge pay, gender pay gap in women's professional cycling. That's all still very much a thing, which is very shocking. And yes, I mean, as I said before, you know, the reason I wanted to write this book was to bring these women's stories to the forefront because that's what I felt was had been missing from the history of the sport. And that's it's just so generally quite white male dominated. And you just have to look at most books on cycling, most bicycle races, and you'll see, you know, the demographic is not very diverse. And, you know, this is just a sort of, you know, a problem that 
it has been kind of, you know, like we talked about, you know, how women were kind of actively, you know, people tried to actively stop women from cycling when the bicycle was invented. And from then on, it's been kind of constant lack of inclusivity. And I think that's kind of image has been what has stopped people from wanting to feeling like that they belong, that this is something for them. That's, you know, cycling's not, I don't see people like myself, so it can't be for me. And I think that that's definitely what the, um, what cycling and, you know, and many others there is society we're still struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. And another interesting thing was about how in countries like Afghanistan and Iran, and then you talk about Saudi Arabia as well, how even now, like cycling is not considered an acceptable thing for women to do. And you also talked about Shannon, I think her last name is Galpin, right? Shannon Galpin's work in Afghanistan. Can you just talk about the state of cycling currently in these countries? Yeah, so Saudi Arabia is is quite interesting because it was actually illegal for women's cycle until I think it was was 2013. It was before women could drive, they were allowed to bicycle, but only just. But what's I think particularly fascinating is that although it's it's women are allowed legally allowed to cycle in Saudi Arabia now, what there's actually some a small print that says, but they're not allowed to use the bicycle to actually go anywhere. Um, I mean, yeah, it's really strange. So you can cycle around a park essentially, but you couldn't cycle. I think the idea is that I mean, it sort of goes back again to what we were talking about with cycling in kind of the western world in the 1890s during that kind of cycling craze is the idea that people the patriarchy didn't want women to use it to find independence to go to places that's what worried them and i think in saudi arabia where it's fairly well known that women don't have much freedom of movement they don't have control over passports and travel generally it's like you know the um the guardianship model where most women have to ask permission from a male member of their family in order to do many things. And the idea of a woman getting on a bicycle is doesn't fit into that, unfortunately. But actually cycling is getting bigger and bigger in the country. Now it's particularly now it's it's legal, even if there is this bizarre caveat about not going anywhere on a bicycle so I spoke to a few women who were part of who'd founded groups for women to go out and cycle and they have become incredibly popular so one of the women I spoke to had she'd spent time in a lot she spends a lot of time in Europe as well and she'd done a bicycle race in Europe and she talked about it on social media and I think someone who didn't one of a paper had interviewed her and she was inundated with messages from women in her country saying, I would love to do that. So she set up a women's cycling group and they go out every week, I think, and they teach people to cycle. Um, and then I spoke to someone else who is doing something very similar as well. Um, and I think there are little groups popping up around the country where women are doing the same and supporting each other and teaching each other. And it's really kind of amazing and inspiring. And in Afghanistan, I spoke to someone called Zakia, who lives in a region called Bamiyan. And she had set up 
a well she'd started cycling because she needed to get to college and she the buses had been stopped and it was too far to walk and the boys were cycling so she thought well I can cycle so I'm just going to cycle and she did but initially she got a huge amount of criticism from particularly the kind of religious community the mullahs in where she lived in some cases it got quite extreme where they talked about you know they even use words like you know stoning her for her for doing something that was deemed as so controversial for a woman but she is incredible and she just ignored him and carried on and she actually went to I think sort of her local government officials and she got their support for what she was doing and then a, another girl in the region saw her cycling and thought I want to join you and it and it went from there and then they set up a team they did their first ever bike race and they're really kind of changing perceptions around what women can do in their region and incredibly brave I think I'm not sure many of us would have stood up to that kind of I was going to say criticism but actually that's too um it's like oppression it's, it's much yeah exactly oppression and also potential violence you know I what she told me I thought it was it was terrifying what she'd she'd had to endure but she was um so determined to continue and do something she enjoyed and was also helping her get an education so she, yeah her story was incredibly inspiring and and the um I know that the that it's still very going strong and they're still doing it and there's also a national team in the um capital couple which is separate but but I think women's cycling it's becoming more established in the country whereas it been almost non-existent before and Shannon Galpin who is from um, Colorado she did amazing work with the Afghan national women's cycling team and she has worked on different inspiring projects around the country helping women do more with bicycles and yes she was yeah incredible to talk to and hear about her experiences really inspiring yeah and that definitely pulls together the seeing women like me doing you know what we talked about with the diversity and in san francisco like the main reason why people aren't riding bikes is because they don't see other women like them doing it and in these countries where you face basically criminal consequences women see other women doing yeah. it and they're like i'm doing it too yeah. yeah it's sort of unimaginable to us yeah it's it's incredible and we really i mean i almost feel guilty and i feel like emotional whenever i hear these stories because i take for granted that i'm allowed to just do whatever i want essentially i can just go out and ride my bike i'm allowed to race i'm allowed to just i, I just take it for granted completely and it makes me really sad that around the world like there are still places where you're getting faced with getting you know killed by stoning if you ride a bike and you're a female yeah it's well it's like like i said it's kind of unimaginable and it's just so hard to understand that that mindset or not understand it but you know we don't have to understand it it's completely wrong but the idea that there are people that really think like that and unfortunately, it's not just Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, it's Iran as well. And But, you know, I hope you know, these are signs that potentially things are changing. But what I know from, when, from Shannon's time in the country, 
in Afghanistan, women's sport was becoming a bigger thing, whereas previously women had done almost no sport at all. But cycling, from her, from what people had told her, cycling was one of the last things to come because it was still so much that thing we were saying earlier where it was that association with women sitting on a saddle straddling a bicycle and this idea that that's a kind of it, it somehow feels to some people that it that's a sexualized position which is seems bizarre but she definitely felt that that was what many people were holding against bicycles specifically that it would take your virginity in countries which is you know where that's still very much a kind of taboo and yeah where virginity is highly prized um and the idea that sitting on a saddle might compromise that in some way yeah man and we are unfortunately out of time and we didn't even get to talk about the history of women's racing and the first like professional oh, female it's cyclist just, it's just so yeah it's just so amazing do you have a couple more minutes to talk about it Yes, of course. What would you um, like to talk about? Like, how did women's racing come to be? And, and like, how did women become professional cyclists? Well, when I say that the reason I wanted to write this book was to make the history of cycling more representative, do, do will certainly play a small role in helping make the history of cycling more look more representative and telling women's stories that haven't been told or have been told, but, you know, haven't necessarily been acknowledged in the way they should be. But there was also because my great grandfather was, he did bicycle racing in the 1890s. And I was really curious. I'd seen pictures of him. I'd seen his medals. And it felt like a very long time ago. That was the beginnings of when the bicycle became a really big thing. And I thought, well, I wonder if women were racing at this time. I'd love to know that. And it took me a while to find out whether they had or not. And certainly where he raced, um, which is in London, and it, he, he was a track cyclist. So he raced in what is now, it's still, a, it's still there, actually, the Hernhill Velodrome. It's a really famous British track. It took me a long time to find out if women had cycled there. And it turned out they had. But again, like much of the history of women cycling, is quite complicated because women had been not accepted by the cycling authorities and women what I discovered was that women had raced and had been racing and they actually even raced although I talked about women not riding high wheel bicycles they had actually raced high wheel bicycles in North America and that was something that was completely really kind of blew me away the idea of these women like they raced horses they raced other men but then cycling became much more professional sports when the safety bicycle became a big thing and women weren't allowed to race then. They were actually banned from most professional racing, certainly in North America, but it didn't stop them. And so there was this amazing kind of troop of, in North America anyway, of safety bicycle racers, female safety bicycle racers, who raced on tracks that had been put up especially for them because they couldn't race in the established stadiums because as I said they weren't they were banned by the professional cycling association but in France it was much more accepted for women to race on bicycles so it was a it was a much bigger thing and in the UK they weren't banned from cycling but they weren't exactly 
particularly welcome in the kind of the main velodromes. But for a while, women's cycling racing in the 1890s did become quite a big thing and it became a big spectator sport. But unfortunately, it kind of sort of died away a little bit in the 1900s. But I found it just absolutely fascinating reading about all these amazing characters, these women who had really become quite famous celebrities for their cycling. And I discovered their sort of their stories had been forgotten and and some of their families didn't even know that their ancestors had, had been these kind of amazing female athletes who had won kind of incredible competitions and travelled to different countries and, as I said, were famous and used to do interviews in the press and um, had kind of fans across the country. And that was just really fascinating to me that there was just this whole really early part of cycling history, which women had been a really kind of big part of and it had generally not been remembered until recently some researchers and academics had had found out much more about this incredible forgotten history early history of cycle racing and then sort of yeah it went a little bit quiet for women cycling and then it came back again but it's all throughout the 20th century it's been women kind of really struggling for recognition within professional cycling and they weren't properly accepted or you know their racing was never acknowledged or recorded until the late 1950s even though women's races still happened they didn't happen in the same way that that men's races had it wasn't professionalized in the way that men's racing was but it was the work of some again some really remarkable women who got that got them to change and eventually they had world cycling championships for women um, in the late 50s and that was kind of where things started to really change and women became part of professional cycling. But if we also remember that women's cycling didn't happen in the Olympics till 1984, you realise how slow it was <laughs> as a sport to change and, and upset women. That's a good cliffhanger for people because they can read the book to learn all of the details. And there's a lot of things that we didn't even have time to talk about. So can you say the book, what the book is called and where people can find it? So the book's called Revolutions, How Women Change the World on Two Wheels and is available from all good bookshops, hopefully, and online and also on audiobook. Yeah, Audible people and audiobook, I guess. And where can people find you if they want to connect with you? I'm on Twitter, sort of intermittently, uh, at Hannah V. Ross, and also the same on Instagram, again, um, slightly intermittently, and even more so off post baby. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, so I hope to uh, be a bit more active soon and also get back on my bike and have some more amazing cycling adventures because that's what I've been missing for a while now. So looking forward to starting those again because that's mainly what i instagram about is my cycle trips you'll have cycle trips with baby and that'll be inspiring for many women and men too yeah Yeah. exactly awesome well thanks so much for coming on the show so awesome thank you so much for having me i hope you guys appreciated and enjoyed that episode i learned so much from hannah and i really loved her book 
And it really helps me keep things in perspective that, man, we are so lucky to have the freedoms that we have. And there are women who had to trailblaze for us to get to where we are today for voting, for being able to ride a bike, for just being able to wear pants. And whenever things are hard and you're a trailblazer, and I know many of you women listening are trailblazers in your life, it isn't always easy and you don't always get to reap the benefits of the new paths that you're carving out for other people. But just think about the big picture in history and how amazing it is that we all get to be a part of this. Make sure you pick up a copy of Hannah's book. And if you like this episode, share it with your friends, post on social media. It'd be great for more people to know about this book and Hannah's work. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.